Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, all. I have two really important announcements today. First, many of you have asked me how you can get a signed copy of the book. Here's how. First, pre-order the book, which you can do at bit.ly slash cryptopians. Second, make a social media post about the book that includes the pre-order link, bit.ly slash cryptopians, or you can link to the book on any bookseller of your choice. Third, send a copy of your receipt to hello at unchainedpodcast.com with a subject line, signed book plate. In the email, include a PDF of your receipt, a screenshot and a link to your social media post, and the address to which you'd like me to send the book plate, plus the name of who you'd like me to dedicate the book plate to. If you show a pre-order receipt that shows you bought more than one format of the book, such as an audiobook as well as the hardcover, you can get two signed book plates. Finally, as you'll hear in the next announcement, I am also launching a premium subscription of my Bulletin newsletter. If you do all the above, plus become a premium subscriber to the Bulletin newsletter, you will also receive a POAP. Now for that second announcement. I mentioned last week that I am now offering a premium subscription on my Bulletin newsletter. It was primarily access to a Facebook discussion group, since Bulletin is a Facebook newsletter. However, many of you expressed that you are either not on Facebook or not fans of Facebook, so we've decided to make the group a Discord. In addition, subscribers will get access to interviews with up-and-coming projects, which will be a more casual, shorter version of Unchained, consisting of the pre-interviews that I've long done for the show but never before released. Subscribers will also have a say in which guests and topics are covered on Unchained itself. You'll also get to weigh in on what questions are asked, and will have access to subscriber-only chats with guests. The introductory price, which is available now, is $2.99 a month or $29.99 a year. On February 15th, the regular price will kick in at $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year. Again, if you sign up for the premium bulletin offering, plus pre-order the book and make a social media post about the book that includes a link to pre-order it, then you will also receive a POAP. We will put all this info in the show notes and in the daily newsletter, so don't worry about memorizing it. But if you'd like a signed book plate, now here is your chance, as many of you have requested. And if you want the premium bulletin offerings, then join now for the introductory price of $2.99 a month or $29 a year before the regular price kicks in on February 15th, and that will be $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year. Finally, again, to repeat, if you do both of these things, then you can receive a POAP as well. All right. Thanks for listening to that long announcement. And now here is the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. 
I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the February 8th, 2022 episode of Unchained. This episode of Unchained is brought to you by Beefy Finance, the multi-chain yield optimizer. Beefy is the easiest way to earn more from your crypto. Deposit funds into Beefy's secure vault to auto-compound yield across 12 blockchains. Got crypto? Choose Beefy. Bosonic is the new decentralized financial market infrastructure. Want real best execution? Want to keep your assets at your custodian? Want zero counterparty risk? You need Bosonic. Bosonic ensures fiduciary certainty for institutional digital assets trading. Alchemy Pay is the pioneer of the world's first truly hybrid crypto and fiat payment network that makes real-world crypto payments easy, secure, and instant for both merchants and users. Alchemy Pay, bridging fiat and crypto economies. Buy, earn, and spend crypto on the Crypto.com app. New users can enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in the first 30 days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA, link in the description. Today's guests are Lee Jin and Jesse Walden, co-founders and general partners at Varian Fund. Welcome, Lee and Jesse. Thanks so much for having us, Laura. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Variant's tagline is a first check crypto fund investing in the ownership economy. Can you each talk about your background before crypto and how that led you to occupy this particular niche in crypto? And why don't we start with Lee? Sure. Um, so I guess where to begin? Um, the high level is that I've been a consumer investor for a number of years. Um, I started in consumer investing in 2016. Before that, I used to be an operator working as a product manager in Silicon Valley. Um, but essentially, since 2016, I've been full-time in venture, um, investing in consumer platforms, marketplaces, social networks, etc., uh, so that's the high level. And the through line of that entire experience has been really focusing on using technology as a tool to increase access and opportunity for people. Um, so when I was working on marketplace investing, I think marketplaces are this really powerful democratizing force for work and dollars. Like it doesn't matter where you're from or who, who you know, as long as you can join one of these platforms you can connect to end consumers. And so that's been really the theme of my investing over the past few years. I started my investing journey at A16Z, which is where Jesse and I overlapped for a number of years. Um, and that's also where I started investing against the thesis of the passion economy, which is the idea that new marketplaces and platforms would arise that would help people earn income independently on the internet. And as I invested in a lot of those businesses, including Substack and Patreon um, and many others, I realized that there was a further step that we could go in terms of enabling that vision of allowing people to in earn income freely on the internet. And that was through actual user ownership of the platforms themselves. So naturally, I began to invest more in Web3 platforms, um, found myself crossing paths a lot with Jesse when we were investing independently throughout 2020. Um, we co-led a number of deals when I started Atelier Ventures and he had started Variant. 
and then ultimately decided that our two theses of the passion economy and the ownership economy were really two sides of the same coin and that by joining forces, we could be a much stronger team for really backing these types of platforms that were giving people an opportunity to achieve financial freedom on the internet. And Jesse, what about your background? Sure, yeah. So yeah, I'm, I got into investing by, by way of building a startup in, in this space back in 2014. I, I co-founded a project called Media Chain Labs. And what we were doing back then was you know, trying to do what Bitcoin had done for digital assets, which is make them ownable independent of any third party. Um, we wanted to do the same for a different kind of digital asset. Instead of a financial asset, we were focused on digital media assets like images, videos, and songs. And so today, that those ideas have been realized by NFTs. Back then, you know, Ethereum didn't exist. The idea that you could easily create tokens that represent all kinds of different uh, assets, including media, was was not a widely distributed idea, but it was one we were exploring about seven years too early. And that was sort of the era of enterprise blockchains, um, or, or blockchain, not Bitcoin, was sort of the narrative at the time. It's not the narrative that we believed we were building for developers, like the developers who are, who are you know working on NFTs today. But all the interest was coming from big companies. One of them was Spotify. They ended up acquiring Media Chain Labs, and I led blockchain R&D there briefly before joining Andreessen Horowitz. Whereas they mentioned, we, we overlapped. I was on the crypto team um, and helped to launch the first crypto fund there. And um, at, at that time, there was very little overlap between the crypto and consumer team because you know 2018, really until 2020, most of what was happening in crypto was developer-facing. It was sort of an infrastructure build-out phase. And so I was I was focused on that, um, and and all similarly focused on a developer platform with my startup, but that sort of afforded me the privilege to to sort of understand what it is that developers were doing in the space, sort of nights and weekends, and and what I started to sort of zero in on was the fact that they were able these developers were building networks that they actually owned in exchange for their contributions, and of course you know Bitcoin and Ethereum are, are the best examples of this, where they are multi billion dollar networks built by you know, developers and technologists who contributed to the code base and ran that code on machines all over the world and in, in return earned the network's native asset, a Bitcoin or an Ethereum, for those contributions. And you know, Chris Dixon, who is my partner at Andreessen, has this great saying that what developers and technologists do nights and weekends is what the rest of us will do in 10 years. And so I started to, to you know, play out that scenario where you know, what, what does it look like for consumers to own and operate the platforms and that they use every day. And, and that was the spark for the ownership economy thesis that we mentioned and, and that we invest against here at Variant. And so during that period where you guys were kind of focused on different areas, but then you gradually began to realize you were working kind of on different sides of the same coin, like Tell me a little bit more about that process, about how you realized that. Like, what were some of the either like key investments that made you realize that, or like how did that transition come about? Yeah, I can speak to it from my perspective. I think it's it's very interesting because I've had a number of conversations with lots of people about how they got into crypto. And I think the common theme is that there's no like there's no singular aha moment. Instead, it's a number of different realizations and introspections over probably like a number of different years that brings people into crypto. And for me, it was no different where, as I mentioned, ever since 2016 and basically for my entire career, I've been focused on technology as a tool to expand access. 
And I was approaching that from lots of different angles. Initially, when I started investing in 2016, the trend at the time was to was to build Uber for X type of marketplaces, like Uber for grocery delivery, Uber for dry cleaning. Um, there was a whole wave of new marketplaces that were trying to foster new jobs, um, but in an on-demand, very accessible, easy to use from the consumer side perspective. And so over the years, I, I had a number of realizations that gradually led me to where I am today. I would say that the, the thesis of the passion economy, as mentioned, was really rooted in how do we enable people to not just do really rote task-based gig work, but to actually allow themselves to express their individuality, leverage their creative skills, leverage their intellect and education in order to make money on the internet. And I wasn't prescriptive about the underlying technology that was needed to, to do that. And so as I started investing against that thesis, I started to see Web3 companies that were using crypto to enable that vision. Um, so for instance, one of the first deals that we co-led together was actually Mirror, which is the crypto-based um, creative platform that enables people to publish on the internet and also do crowdfunding and a number of other interesting monetization mechanisms. And then and then I just continue to do more along those lines. I invested in foundation and then um, syndicate protocol and a number of other Web3 projects that were helping to realize the, the vision and the mission that I had. And I gradually had this realization that this is actually a very dynamic area of technology where people were not just earning income, but they were actually earning ownership in the underlying platforms. And that was so much more powerful for each of the participants than the former case where they were just earning income. I would say another big moment in, in my journey was a course that I taught in early 2020. I developed, um, designed and taught this cohort-based course for social media creators to help them learn how to become angel investors. I had this theory that some of the best investors of our generation were going to be content creators who had big audiences online and could represent built-in distribution for the startups that they were backing. And I also knew that these creators contributed a ton of the value to these companies, yet we're seeing very little of it in return because they weren't owners of, of the actual company. And so I wanted to bridge that gap and bring them into my network, teach them how to invest, teach them what to look for, you know, how to parse consumer metrics and all of that. And the course was such an eye-opening experience for me because I realized that most of these creators were actually not accredited investors. Even though they had big social media followings, their financial status actually lagged behind their social capital, um, which was really interesting. They, they struggled to translate their social capital into financial capital. So a lot of them were not accredited and couldn't actually legally invest in these businesses. And then if they were accredited, they were investing maybe $1,000, $2,000, something really small and not getting as much ownership as I felt was fair in these platforms. They had to you know, do an outlay of capital that they were really short on in order to become investors at all. Um, so I felt like that dynamic was just inherently quite broken. And I 
felt like it was there were all these bottlenecks to them being able to participate in the ownership of these platforms. And so that that naturally then led me to explore, well, what are the other ways that we can actually make creators and participants of these platforms owners? And obviously tokens are represent one such tool. And when you say that their social capital um, was, you know, far ahead of their financial capital, was that because of the platforms that like the platforms weren't compensating them enough or like what, what was the issue there? Yeah, it, it was a mix of everything. So I would say like the status quo on a lot of these social media platforms is that the platforms don't compensate the creators directly. Uh, YouTube might be the only one that does any sort of revenue sharing with its creators. The other platforms, the, the dominant model as a creator is really to go outside of the platform and to seek revenue yourself, whether that's from brands or sponsors or um, from your fans directly, like setting up a Patreon page. In most cases, these creators weren't being paid from the platforms. I would say that the second issue is that today, like in like our accredited investor regulations are really predicated on the stability of income. And so a lot of these creators, they had shot to fame relatively quickly and they were earning a lot in the moment, but they didn't have necessarily two years of history of earnings. Um, at that point in time, TikTok had been around in the US for maybe two years total. And so a lot of these creators who are really famous just didn't have the history of earnings that is needed in order to be accredited. Wow. And Jesse, do you want to talk a little bit also um, about like, well, I have to just call out a tweet that uh, you tweeted that I found fascinating, which was you said, music is the most criminally undervalued and under monetized media type relative to its consumption, which definitely seemed very spot on. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the problems that you saw in the music industry and how you think that the ownership economy slash Web3 can solve them. Sure. Um, well, yeah. So the, the the part I didn't mention about my background at the outset is before I, I got started in, in crypto but as as a founder, I was working in the music industry as an artist manager, and um, I, I so I was founder of this this management company it was called Cool Managers. We we used to rep um, artists like Solange Knowles, who's Beyonce's sister, Blood Orange, Magical Clouds, and and the goal of that management company was to help those artists use technology platforms, which were emerging around the time. This was sort of like, you know, 2010 or so. So Instagram and, you know, Facebook were, were sort of just, well, Instagram was just coming on the scene at, at that point. The goal was to help the artists use those platforms to reach their fans directly and run their business independent of sort of the major label infrastructure um, that, that was, you know, more traditionally leveraged by musicians. And, you know, so, so that... Um, whole experience was illuminating because it, on the one hand, had a lot of promise, right? It seemed like we would we would get out from under the thumb of the major labels. There's there's three major labels. They determine how, you know, prior to the internet, determine how music got distributed, how it was monetized, what the, what the artist deals looked like, and artists didn't have a lot of choice. So the promise was the platforms were going to sort of disintermediate that, and, and they did to a large degree. But they also became the new intermediaries, and, you know, to the points Lee was just speaking to, you know, they, they, they became the sort of blockers for artists to reach their audience, monetize. And it was around the same time that I first learned about Bitcoin. 
I, you know, I had no background in finance. So the, the idea that there was this, you know, digital store of value, this financial asset was was cool to me as a technologist, but I, I wasn't that interested in the sort of, you know, global macro implications of that at the time. What was interesting to me was um, that Bitcoin as a protocol was very similar to a lot of peer-to-peer protocols that came before it, like BitTorrent and, you know, FTP. And, you know, the way I got into music in the first place is through piracy. Um, in, you know, as a teenager in the early 2000s, I was using those peer-to-peer protocols to pirate all the, you know, all the world's music. And, and that's how I became such a huge music fan in the first place. And so when I read the Bitcoin white paper and realized that this is very similar to BitTorrent in a lot of ways, it's, it's a peer-to-peer protocol, it immediately clicked that there was one thing that was different about it and, and that was really important. And, and that was Bitcoin as a protocol has this identity and attribution system built into it such that you know that, you know, Laura's Bitcoin is, is in fact Laura's. And when she sends me one, I have one more and she has one less. And that kind of attribution system was fundamentally missing from BitTorrent where you didn't know who created any of the files in the network. You were just downloading stuff that was out there. There was no identity for any of the participants, no, no means to communicate with other participants in protocol. And Bitcoin changed that. You, you, you didn't know their real name, but you knew you know, whose Bitcoin belonged to whom. And I thought, cool, what if you could take that primitive and apply it to a different kind of asset, apply it to you know, a digital media asset, you could know who the creator was. And then that creator could monetize their work directly without having to depend on the platform to intermediate that relationship. So, so that was sort of the straight line from artist management to, to getting involved in crypto world. And it was the spark for my startup. And, and then that idea just started to snowball. I started to realize we're, you know, we're all creators online. Everyone who posts content to social media is, is creating something of value to the platform. It's not just musicians and, and you know, artists in the traditional sense. We're all creators. But there's never been a way for you know every everyone with an internet connection to sort of participate in the value they're creating for these platforms, and that's to do with a lot of the reasons we touched on. But but also the fact that you know the the, the concepts of like em- employee stock options, for example, which is one way that ownership of these platforms is distributed to contributors. Those those like stock options are limited to people who can work you know for for the company based in the U.S. Who have the means to you know parse the legal documents and you know and then sort of receive those shares and, and then later sort of execute them on the stock exchange. It's a very cumbersome system. It's very costly to, to maintain and it doesn't scale to everyone on the internet. So as, as I got further and further into the crypto world, I realized tokens are this internet native way of distributing value. It's it's akin to the way internet the internet protocol itself turned all the world's information into packets. Tokens are a way to turn all the world's value in, in, into inter- an internet native vehicle that can move just like packets instantly to anyone anywhere in the world. And it started to click for me. This is how we distribute the ownership value of these platforms to anyone with an internet connection who's able to participate. And that that was sort of the spark for for our thesis and and sort of you know my motivation in the space. And it's it's very much aligned with you know where I started my professional career, which is trying to help creators capture more of the value that that they create. So we'll definitely talk more about how these different crypto networks uh, enable these user owners. But let's also first just touch on NFTs, which uh, to my mind, and, and you can you know agree or disagree, um, are maybe the first building block of this ownership economy. 
And last year, obviously, was kind of the first full year, I guess I would say, of like real traction with NFTs. And actually, so at the time that we're recording, the month of January hasn't quite finished yet. So I'm not sure where we'll end up. But already it looks to me like OpenSea is going to surpass $6 billion in trading, which is by far its highest volume month ever. So let's just talk a little bit about like where you think NFTs are going and then what stage of the cycle we are right now in their development. Sure. I'll, I'll start with the second question, which is, you know, I, th- I think we're very, very early in, in where this is going. And that's, that's because I, I believe, and I, I published an essay about this in early 2021, um, I believe NFTs are going to be the sort of default port of entry for every single piece of media on the internet. It's just, it's, it's the sort of natural tendency of, of what this technology wants, which is, you know, it, NFT is a metaphor I've used to describe what they are in very simple terms. Is it's sort of like taking a file and uploading it to the blockchain. That's that's technically incorrect, but it's it's a good sort of metaphor to just, you know talk about abstract abstractly what we're doing by uploading a file to the blockchain. You make it sort of tamper proof and you make it ownable. Like just like you can own a Bitcoin or own uh, an Ethereum, you, you can own a non fungible token, an NFT that corresponds to you know any kind of file, any piece of media that, that you want attributed and, and ownable. And the benefit of doing this is you can make money from uh, selling it, selling ownership, just like you can make money from, from selling you know, a personal item or a house or any piece of property that you own in the physical world. So you know, that's what's pulling creators towards NFTs is historically, they haven't been able to do that. You can't sell you know, a JPEG on Facebook, but now you can, you can monetize your media directly um, by selling it to a fan. And it's more than just sort of, you know, patronage, and, you know, which is something that's kind of familiar in web two. It's, um, it's a model that I call patronage plus, which is, you know, a, a fan of your work can support you by buying it from you, but they, they too can also benefit from the possible appreciation of value of that work by reselling it in the future. And that, that's a function of, um, you know, a, a, a property rights system that is internet native. Um, and it's a function of the traditional art market too, right? It's if you have property rights, collector can can buy an artist's work whom they like, and if that that artist goes on to become world famous, that collector can resell it at a profit. And the possibility of being able to profit from your work is um, a really great incentive to become a patron in the first place. So, so my view is, you know, that that's another reason NFTs, you know, will become a port of entry because the collectors, the buy, buy side of the market, it's better for them too. And thirdly, it's it's better for developers than legacy models be for, for an important reason. If for example, if you if you were a developer and you built on top of sort of legacy social media platform like Facebook or Instagram, you know, on top of their APIs and you built something of value, there, there was a very good chance that Facebook would say, wait a minute, you, you can't capture the value of the thing that you made that's awesome. We're, we're, we, we need to capture it and we're going to shut off your API access. And we can do that because we're Facebook. But the thing about these um, these files on the blockchain is nobody can shut off the blockchain. So developers can continue to build new experiences around this media that's getting uploaded to the chain. I like to think of it as sort of like a universal media library. That's that's what we used to call the startup I was building, Media Chain. Is that our goal was to build a universal media library where all the world's media would be openly accessible for anyone to consume, just like you know it is in, in Web two. You can find any image and any song out there on the internet. But critically, developers could build on top of this media library and sort of extend it 
create new experiences for us to, you know, to consume media, to remix it. And, and nobody would be able to stop them from doing it, just like no one can, can turn off the Bitcoin or Ethereum network. So for, for all those reasons that, that, you know, creators, collectors, developers can all sort of make more money and innovate permissionlessly in this new environment, I think, you know, NFTs will like become the port of entry for every single piece of media on, on, on the internet. So that's, that's where we're going. And, and I should, I'll, the last thing I'll say is, you know, I've been talking about media in a very sort of traditional way, images, videos, songs. I think there's also going to be sort of another dimension to this, which is these aren't just images, videos, songs, they're programmable assets. So, so they're more than just the, the media itself. You can program them to do things like share revenue that, that um, is you know, between two creators that collaborate, that can be programmed into the asset itself. You can program um, a piece of artwork that's responsive to whom has collected it because it can be aware of that. And so I think there will also be sort of net new media types created on, on this new platform or, or, you know, or the medium is sort of the message. And, and that's really exciting. And we're, we're in the very early innings of that. And I did want to ask you actually, because, um, and I don't know if this is what you mean when you say like NFTs will be the port of entry, but I know that you've said like in other interviews that you think every photo somebody makes on their iPhone will be introduced to the world as an NFT. And I, I was just thinking, you know, obviously like my friends and I, or my family and I will like, we'll share photos all the time. So you're, are you saying that every time I create one of these, I'm going to make it as an NFT because I don't know who's going to buy that. Or is it just, I'll give the NFT to like, you know, my mom or my, my friend or whatever. Like, like, yeah, I, I was, yeah, I was kind of skeptical so, of the 100% so, of all the, I was a little bit like, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So first it's important to distinguish that, you know, the photo, like the JPEG, it, it still exists and you can still like text it to your friends and your family and, and whatever. Like the, the JPEG, it can be infinitely reproduced, just like, you know, today, you don't think twice about, you know, copy pasting it into an iMessage and sending it. But th that, that can be true. And it can all simultaneously be true that that original photo, the, 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 as soon as you take it, it's registered on the blockchain. And, and that registration says, Lorishan took this photo on this date and, and it's hers. And that's what is, you know, what's actually uploaded to the blockchain when I when I say, you know, uh, NFTs are files on the blockchain, it's not that the image itself is going onto the chain, rather, it's the registration that this is yours, you created it. And you're saying, this is, this is, this is the, you know, canonical representation of this idea. So, like, to make this more concrete, it's helpful to think of like the Mona Lisa, where, you know, the, the Mona Lisa has been infinitely reproduced all over the world. Um, it's on postcards, t-shirts, and then there's the canonical Mona Lisa, the one that's hanging in the Louvre, right? And that's the one that's valuable. Owning the Mona Lisa, you, you can't really put a price on it. Um, it's not for sale as far as I know, but you can imagine it'd be extremely valuable if it went to auction in spite of the fact that it's reproduced everywhere. And, and I think you could even extend that argument to say that the more something is reproduced, the more value in owning the original. And that's why you know JPEGs being copy pasted and shared all over the internet is compatible with the idea that you can own the original one that Laura signed in the corner and said, this is, this is mine. And, and that's, you know, the distinction and why I think, you know, every image will ultimately be registered this way. It's an option on it becoming valuable. What if your photo goes viral, and becomes a huge meme that someone wants to own? 
you should have the option to monetize that and you should have that as a default. Okay. And then because obviously I'm literally thinking about the exact photos that I take and I'm a little bit like, I definitely wouldn't want all of this registered on the blockchain. (laughs) But so I was just wondering, would it be like default private where like if later on I wanted it, you know, because like I can't imagine the data is just going to be public, right? Because it just makes me think of, yeah, like Tor Bear's secret network where he was like, blockchains will eventually be default private. And so when you were talking about that, I was like, oh, well, hopefully if if all my photos end up on the blockchain, I would like them to be all private. <laughs> yeah. So, so yes, I, I think it, you will have like options here for sure. I think in, in, as we go, like, right as it stands today, like if you look at on chain at the data that, you know, associated with an NFT, what's actually there is a a representation of the image, but not the image itself. It's a hash of the image. So the, the hash is derived from the zeros and ones of the, the image file. If you change one pixel, you get a different hash. So that, that's how you can, you know, th- sort of authenticate, you know, is this NFT, does it correspond with, with this image or this idea? Um, it's based on the zeros and ones in the data, but it's not the image itself. So there's one layer of sort of abstraction there. But in the future, I think there, there will be totally private ways to prove um, that this was your file without revealing anything about the file itself, not even its fingerprint or hash. So, so that that's like a there's this whole exciting field of zero knowledge proofs that will allow you to make these sort of claims without revealing any any private data, and, and I think that will become a big part of the NFT world for sure. And again, one I, I feel badly because we're we're talking about images, videos, songs, but so much of the innovation happening in NFTs is is again it's like around game assets and like new kinds of you know collectible you know, worlds uh, that, that people are building where there's these character universes, like, you know, kind of like Pokemon, but where, um, you know, there's this like internet scale collector base and people contributing to develop the story for that character universe, not as opposed to some studio. So there's lots of like net new things enabled. It's not just like buying and selling art. It's, it's a, it's a brand new medium for expression and monet- you know, monetizing that expression. And, and so it's, it's much, much bigger than, you know, Sotheby's or, or whatever. Can I just add something here, by the yeah. way? Yeah. yeah. I So I totally agree with everything that Jesse mentioned um, and the fact that I think we're very much in the early days of the development of what we'll see NFTs eventually get used for. I think like backing up from the specifics, I think it's helpful to think of NFTs as the first instance in which we could actually own digital goods digital goods that have ownership and verifiable scarcity. And why that's important to frame it as digital goods is because we are surrounded by physical goods in the real world that are also non-fungible. Like everything in this room, everything around us, like what I'm wearing, these are all physical goods that I also own. And so from a user perspective, that analogy is important because then you can think of like, well, what are all of the possible digital goods that people might want to own online in the future with NFTs. And you can decompose on the consumer side, the rationale for why people desire ownership. There's a bunch of reasons why we just, why we want to own things offline um, that also translate to online. So in the real world, the reasons why we want to buy things and own them is for investment. Like we buy things because we think the price will go up, buy things for status, like Buying something showcases something about me to everyone else who can see that I own this thing. Um, Another reason why we buy things is for community, like having a thing 
gets me access to this group of like-minded people, like having a Tesla automatically enters me into a community of people who also love Tesla. And then I think the biggest reason why people own things offline is for utility. Like we consume goods because they actually bring value to our lives. They they do certain jobs. In the Clay Christensen framework, there's a job to be done for every object that we surround ourselves with. And transposing that to the online world of NFTs, I think we're still really early because the types of consumer motivations that NFTs tap into are still really scratching the surface of those different rationales, where today NFT purchases are very much driven. I think a lot of the market is driven by investment and by status and less so driven by community or utility. Um, There's almost like very, there's very little utility with NFTs today, but utility is the main driver of why we purchase goods offline. And so it's natural to envision that in the future, we're also going to buy digital goods for the utility that they bring us in all of these different applications and online worlds that we spend a lot of time in. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. And it goes to, you know, what Jesse was saying about the gaming, because obviously, like with Axie Infinity, certain of the axes are like better than others, um, or things like that, or well, I mean, ENS, uh, Ethereum name service domain names are like an obvious example, or these like token gated discords are another example where, you know, you need those NFTs in order to gain membership to this club. But so we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the different types of NFTs. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. New users enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in their first 30 days. With Crypto.com Earn, you can get industry-leading interest rates of up to 8.5% on over 40 coins, including Bitcoin, and earn up to 14% on stablecoins. With the Crypto.com Visa card, you can spend your crypto anywhere. Enjoy up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions, and zero annual fees. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Bosonic is the new decentralized financial market infrastructure. Bosonic eliminates counterparty credit and settlement risk for institutions. Do you want to gain maximum capital efficiency with the lowest possible risk? Do you want to separate custody from liquidity provision? Do you want to eliminate opening accounts and funding at exchanges? Do you want to avoid bilateral credit and bilateral settlement movements with market makers? Do you wish you could be fully cross-margined and go long on one exchange, short on another, and be net flat instantly? Bosonic lets you trade on global aggregated liquidity from the safety and convenience of your own custodial account. Bosonic is institutional DFMI that empowers clients rather than competing with them. Finance is changing. Strategies are changing. Holding is changing. Beefy Finance, the multi-chain yield optimizer, allows you to maximize passive income while you sleep. Simply deposit your crypto into Beefy's secure, industry-leading auto-compounding vaults to put your funds to work. Each one of Beefy's 740 vaults automatically reinvests the interest gained on your crypto deposits, earning you more, while saving you time and fees. Beefy's strategies create 
bank-busting APYs with 0% deposit fees at the click of a button. Join $1.4 billion of investments and understand why so many users trust Beefy with their financial independence. Visit beefy.finance and take control of your financial future. Alchemy Pay is the pioneer of the world's first truly hybrid crypto and fiat payment network that makes real-world crypto payments easy, secure, and instant for both merchants and users. It is currently being used by merchant partners in more than 70 countries for online and offline, consumer-to-business, and business-to-business transactions. Through partnerships with Shopify, NIUM, and Binance, as well as integrations with Algorand, Polygon, and Avalanche, Alchemy Pay is making crypto investment, commercial transactions, and DeFi services readily accessible to consumers and institutions in the fiat economy. Head to alchemypay.org to see how you can facilitate easy crypto acceptance for your business. Follow Alchemy Pay on Twitter at at Alchemy Pay, bridging fiat and crypto economies. Back to my conversation with Lee and Jesse. So actually, before we go into some of the kind of like different variations and and also, frankly, into more of a discussion around the, how the nature of work will change, I did want to make sure to touch on music NFTs a little bit more. Um, Jesse, I, I, you know, have, I obviously have, you know, asked you about your background here and I've just been hearing from so many people that they feel like this is the year that music NFTs will take off because for uh, the last several months, at least, JPEG has been like another word for NFT. And I'm like, well, it's not only that. Um, So what's, yeah, conception of like what music NFTs will be and what they'll look like? Yeah, I'm realizing I I totally failed to answer you earlier when you asked, asked about music NFTs. I launched it to my background and then NFTs more broadly. But yeah, so... I'm I am super excited about about music NFTs. Um, you know, I think it's it's very similar to what we saw play out in in 2020 2021, which was the you know the the it started with digital art and then it became sort of you know profile pics and digital collectibles that were mostly visual in nature. Really, really took off and and started to grab sort of eye popping numbers on primary and secondary markets. I think that, that culminated with people selling, you know, a, a piece of digital. Uh, art for $69 million at, at Sotheby's. And what's important about to, to like, you know, no, notice there is it was a very reflexive sort of cycle where, you know, initially, you know, th- there was a headline, an artist sold a, a meme for like a million dollars and people were like, oh my God, what? No, that's, that sounded crazy um, because no one had ever sold memes for that kind of money because, you know, it wasn't possible before. But that um, that headline was, you know, very reflexive in that it, it then solicited more creators to jump into the market and, and you know, list their stuff for sale as NFTs, and in turn, like more collectors came to the market, and, and that just really snowballed. And as you started out by saying, like OpenSea is now doing six billion dollars of volume in a month. I, I think the the same thing is very likely to happen for for other verticals, not you know just visual, but other verticals where there's a large sort of you know audience for for the work and music, as you quoted me earlier, music is like criminally undervalued for um, the, the relative to the consumption, right? Like people are, are listening to music all day and, and at work and at night to, you know, relieve stress, whatever. We all enjoy music and, and consume it kind of like um, a, from, from a faucet from streaming services, it's always on. 
but yet we, you know, we only are showing out at most $10 a month for, for streaming services. And many people are, are not paying anything. It's, it's free and ad supported. It's really difficult for recording artists to, to make a living from, from that model. So I think the same sort of phenomena is likely to play out here where what, what, what I expect we'll see in the coming year is you will see uh, an artist release their music um, as an NFT and you will see a headline about it's selling for an, an, an you know outrageous amount of money and, and people will balk at that um, because they're not accustomed to, to seeing music you know transacted in, at that scale just like you know digital art was was not um, transacted in, in, at, at, at those prices prior to NFTs and that will kick off the same reflective cycle that ultimately sort of reorients um, people's view towards the value of music and and where, wherein it becomes a collectible item that that people want to own. You know, you can imagine Kanye West, for example, like dropping his next album where each song is is available to buy as an NFT. And I bet there's a collector out there that's willing to pay top dollar. And so, you know, th- that's what I think will, will ultimately happen. I think this is really good for artists because it allows you to monetize your true fans and allow them to, to sort of become patrons outside of the cookie cutter mold of, of platforms like Spotify, where you pay this fixed $10 a month, no matter what you consume. Um, here in, in this model, you, you can pay whatever you think it, you know, the, the, it's worth to be the, you know, the collector, the biggest fan of, of an artist. And, and I think that will be really, really good. for Yeah. Musicians. Something else that just fascinated me was I saw uh, when Nas did his drop on Royal, what the NFTs were the like 50% of the future, uh, the amount that he was going to earn from the streams of those songs. And, you know, I mean, who knows how much that could be like, it just seems really interesting because it kind of makes the buyer more like a business partner or something. Yeah. What, what was your thought on that? Because like the idea of just like releasing each song as an NFT is maybe like very obvious or something, but like that was a, a really creative twist, I thought. Yeah, so it, it's cool. And it's actually it's actually not a new idea. There's David Bowie in the 80s um, created what he called the Bowie Bond, which was actually a, a very similar idea. It was a way for his fans to invest in the future publishing royalties for his the, the songs that he wrote. And um, I forget where they traded, but, you know, in sort of financial, it was, he was the first artist to like financialize his fandom in, in this way. And, and what Nas just did with, with NFTs is the same idea, just sort of a new vehicle for it, which, which is, you know, uh, an, an asset that's on chain, but linked to the, the publishing royalties off chain. So my, my personal view on this is like, I, I think it's great. I think this will ha- this will exist. And ultimately, I think all sort of traditional assets will be traded on chain because it's just a more efficient sort of 24 seven global way to do it. But it's also a little bit skeuomorphic, right? It's it's you know copyright and the whole concept of artist royalties is, is a um, an idea that belongs to like um, to nation states, right? So like you, you know um, Nas's royalties in the U.S. are administered by ASCAP, and in Canada they're administered by SOCAN, and so on. There's different agencies all over the world. It's it's kind of a really difficult problem to get them all in sync and communicating with the owner of the NFT on chain. I'm more excited about sort of internet native royalties that are possible because of the, you know, the paradigm of smart contracts where, you know, I can sell an NFT where any secondary resale of that NFT has a royalty baked into the creator or to the first collector, for example, all that can be programmed into the asset itself. And that's completely distinct from, you know, the world of of copyright, which again, is sort of a, a nation state construct as opposed to an internet native construct. So I'm, I'm much more excited about artists exploring that and, and, and how they can sort of 
leverage the the sort of native transactions happening on chain to to benefit their their fans and and so we're starting to see that happen too where like we have we're investors in in a startup called Bonfire which gives tools for for creators to create DAOs with their fans where essentially their fans can own an NFT alongside the creator and help them monetize it and benefit from you know the, the the revenue that comes in from you know from the creator's work. So it's it's sort of like the same concept but with internet native royalties. So Lee, I wanted to ask you about some writings that you've done on what you call like in, how income insecurity and job insecurity in the gig economy is like something similar that creators face and how you feel like Web3 slash these user-owner networks can help address issues like that, as well as even things like economic inequality. So how do you see that happening? Right. Uh, So a theme of um, some of my writing from last year has really been about the parallels between the creator economy and the gig economy. In the gig economy, obviously, I think we've all been exposed now to the downsides and the impact that they've had on their workers in terms of mental health and income instability, how they can be deplatformed at any moment and their livelihood essentially taken away in an instant without any recourse. Um, And I think a lot of those negative effects of the gig economy also apply to the Web2 creator economy as it exists on the large social networking platforms. Um, The parallels are um, very clear to me in terms of the creators being beholden to these platforms, being able to be deplatformed at a moment's notice without any explanation and without any recourse thereby stripping them of their livelihood. They also, similarly to gig workers, don't own their customer relationships. They're intermediated by the platform. And so if they, you know, if they get banned or deplatformed, there's no way to reach their end consumers anymore. They also don't control their own monetization. They don't get to determine their own pricing. As we had mentioned before, the platform is really dictating unilaterally how it earns revenue, what portion of that gets shared or not with the actual creators themselves. And so um, I think the the creator economy is becoming gigified in that way, even though I, I think the popular narrative tends to be, at least as espoused by these platforms, that, that these creators are, are being empowered. Um, I think there's actually a lot of negative trends that we're seeing. And this has come to bear in the fact that we're seeing an increasing number of creators going on strike and actually organizing themselves and employing some of the tactics of the labor movement to actually try and campaign for better platform policies and product design. And so where this then intersects with Web3 and and leads to a vision for what can be improved in a, a healthier creator economy is basically to remedy all of those things, to check the power that these Web2 platforms hold we need to have creators having a seat at the table in terms of how these products are governed, how monetization works, how the product roadmap is designed, and also to give them ownership of their end customer relationship such that they are essentially in control of their destiny rather than being beholden to one given corporation. So let's though talk maybe about some of these criticisms of Web3, because I'm sure you have seen 
Jack Dorsey, the former CEO of Twitter, now the CEO of Block, he says that actually, you know, Web3 is something that's really VC owned. So it's not truly decentralized. Of course, you two are both VCs investing in Web3. So what is your response to that take? Chris Dixon, obviously, we, we both work with Andreessen and had a great response, which is he, he pulled up the sort of ownership of, of Jack's Square Inc. Um, and it, it, it showed, you know, the, the, the bulk of holders are certainly not users. They're like large financial institutions. And, and so, you know, that, that's not to say, I'm, I'm not trying to make a direct, you know, Web 2 versus Web 3 comparison here, but I think certainly I, I'm very confident saying Web 3 offers users the opportunity to participate in the platforms and the products and services they use every day. That is certainly a new, net new thing that was not possible in, in Web 2 until companies went public. And, and once they did, you know, large financial institutions typically bought up most of them. So I would say that is directionally a lot, you know, better in align with what Lee was just talking about in terms of giving more meritocratic or, or equal opportunity to, per, to participants um, to get involved at an early stage. That doesn't mean, though, that, you know, VCs are not involved. Um, obviously, we're, we're here investing in the space, and that's because these projects need to start somewhere, right? I, I, I wrote a, um, an essay about progressive decentralization which sort of describes a playbook for founders building in the space, wherein it's still really important to build a product that people want um, and that's useful. And, and typically, you know, building a product is not something you want to do with, with a lot of people shouting over each other in terms of, you know, their strong opinions of what the product should be. You need sort of an opinionated leader to come in and say, this is how it should work. Even Bitcoin had Satoshi with the white paper that described how the system would work, right? And um, so you start with an idea or product and, um, and then you build a community of users around the product. And then finally, you effectuate a distribution of ownership to the users through a token. And that is how users come to own these platforms. In order to get from step one to step three, founders need capital to hire people to build out the initial product, build the community. And, and that's where the, the role for VCs comes in. But typically, when we invest in a startup in this space, we, you know, we own a, a minority of the company and we own even less of the eventual token um, that they might produce. And in, in fact, we go so far to say that in, in our, a lot of our deal documents, that the, the founders and the investors of the company should own a minority of all the tokens that come into an existence to ensure that the network is sufficiently decentralized and actually owned by the, the contributors who are, you know, who are contributing as it grows. And, and one framework to think about this is, we can we can compare some sort of traditional VC to to crypto VC. In traditional VC, a company will raise a seed round A, B, C, D, E, F, G round, and each round is more and more dilutive to the original founders and the early investors. And that dilution is sort of taken on because it's seen as a way to grow the pie for for everyone, right? Like more capital in the door, more growth. In crypto, what happens is, is typically projects will raise a seed round, and then maybe they'll go on to raise a series A round. But then they'll go through this process of progressive decentralization where they exit to the community of users. And in so doing, roughly like 50 or 60% of the, the tokens in the network will end up in the user's hands. And that is very dilutive to the, to the early cap table. But again, that dilution is taken on for the same reason. It's, it's seen as a way to grow the pie, because if your users are aligned with the success of the platform, we assume that you can build a network that grows much bigger, much faster because the, the users are economically aligned to see it su succeed. 
So the whole like thesis is predicated on this idea that if the users own the network, it's a better outcome for everyone. That doesn't mean there's no role for investors early on. And, and that's why I think Jack's, um, Jack's criticisms are, you know, frankly, a little un, un-nuanced. And what is the ideal allocation then to VCs when you say it should be a minority? Like, what do you generally recommend? I mean, I think there's a spectrum for, for different kinds of projects. But typically what we see is, is the users owning the majority of the network, which t- implies more than 50%. And, you know, in terms of how, how networks are governed, that's a critical threshold, right? Because you want the, the networks to remain aligned with users over time to the extent, you know, that, that you know, you don't want to... I think a, a network is kind of dead on arrival if VCs or even VCs plus the early team own cumulatively more than 50% of the network out of the gate. So that that's what we sort of every investment we make, we aspire to have the the users of the platform own more than fifty percent, because that's how the, the network is, many of these networks are governed. So typically, by uh, for the deals that you do, you recommend that you and the early team, I guess, own fifty percent, and then the users own fifty percent. Yeah, or sometimes even less, depending on on the project. It's, it, again, like the. Uh, the whole theory here is that these networks benefit from their users contributing to the platform and the incentive for them to contribute is that they own it. And so for some projects, it, it can make sense for the users to own the vast majority of it um, and for inv- early investors to own 20% because the, the network is so dependent on their contributions out of the gate. Okay, let's actually also discuss one other um, criticism, was, which was uh, the signal former CEO, uh, again, the, these people like both left their jobs around the same time. <laughs> um, former CEO of Signal took Web3 to task for not actually being decentralized. And he wrote an essay where he talked about how he created this NFT and he designed it so that it would appear different depending on where you looked at it from. And when you looked at it in your own wallet, it turned into a poop emoji NFT. <laughs> and he says that then OpenSea removed it from its platform and then he was shocked to find that in his own wallet, it appeared as if he didn't own it. And I guess that was because like MetaMask calls the OpenSea API. So he concludes that, you know, Web3 is actually centralized. So what's your response to that? Yeah, I'm happy to take this and we feel free to weigh in too. But it's very early in the infrastructure build out of Web3. So today it's true, you know, OpenSea is, is the big player in NFTs and, and MetaMask integrates their API. and. That's why Moxie, you know, saw his NFT go missing in his wallet, even though on chain, he, he did actually still own it. It just wasn't being shown to him in his wallet because OpenSea had removed it from their API. Um, so the, the issue here is there, you know, there are centralized players in the mix. There's the blockchain, which is decentralized. And then on top of the blockchain, there's sort of infrastructure built out. The key thing to note is like, this is how the early internet sort of web one was built too. We had, you know, open protocols like IP and, and, you know, email is built on top of an open protocol, IMAP and SMTP. And then there's services built on top of those open protocols like Gmail. And Gmail provides a great service, which is, you know, it it's filters for spam. It lets you search your inbox really well. Um, and so, you know, people use Gmail. But the thing that's critical is like, Google can't abscond with email protocol and, and say, you know what, we're not interoperating with um, with this protocol anymore. It's it's only email because effectively they'd, they'd be cutting off all their users from contacting their friends who are not using Gmail. And, and there's just not, you know, that's not a benefit to users. That's that would be sort of value destructive for them. So their protocols sort of force the platforms to play on 
um, the, the protocol's terms. And I think like, you know, OpenSea today has outsized influence because they're the, the, the biggest player in the market, but that's a function of just them being so early. I think as we, as we sort of scale the ecosystem, there will be more players. And um, if OpenSea has competition, and, and you know, the competition is not shutting off that um, you know, Moxie's uh, NFT because it's a poop emoji or, or whatever, OpenSea will have a harder time doing it. They'll, they'll be forced by competition to sort of you know, honor the protocol and, and, and interoperate with it as specified. So I think what Moxie is describing is sort of a short-term phenomena in in the build-out that we're we're sort of undertaking, which is a, a, you know going to take years to mature. So this might be a bigger hurdle right now. It looks like Web three is also sort of losing kind of the uh, the PR battle amongst kind of normies or non crypto people. We've seen different gaming platforms when they announce NFTs, they experience a big backlash. We saw um, Discord when they kind of hinted at an Ethereum integration, big backlash. They they even backtracked. BTS, uh, the K-pop group, I think saw a big backlash when they announced NFTs. So why do you think this is happening? And how do you think people like you can overcome this PR issue? Yeah, we were just discussing this topic this morning as a team um, internally and and kind of like just, yeah, reflecting on it, discussing what could be done. I think as for the underlying reasons, to me, what it's reflective of is a lot of latent resentment broadly in the world and in this country around income inequality and financial disparities. I think that a lot of what people see publicly around NFTs, a lot of the headlines that they see, a lot of the very vocal news on on Twitter and and elsewhere is really around like the huge headline numbers of sales or how much people bought their profile picture for. And in a world in which in the, the wealth gap is becoming wider and wider, I think that kind of news can be really distasteful and cause people to feel this mix of like sadness, jealousy, resentment, um, unfairness, because they are not personally benefiting from that. And it it feels like inherently unfair that someone who lucked into just purchasing one of these, you know, JPEGs, as they would say, like early on, is now a multimillionaire, whereas they who, you know, this person who has been working for 30 years couldn't possibly earn the income that would be equivalent to to that one stroke of luck. There is something kind of unfair and luck-based in that. And I think compounded with that issue is the fact that there have been, unfortunately, like scams happening in the NFT space. There are people who are creating these collections, promising all of these things and built out in terms of product, which then never comes. And so they are able to realize that chunk of revenue at the beginning um, from selling out of their mint, and then they don't uphold their promise. And so over a large number of cases of these instances, I do think that for a lot of normal people, it's easy to look at that and say like, wow, like on one hand, like people are getting mega rich. And two, there's all these scams, like people who are winning are doing so at the expense of other people who are losing. And that obviously brings up a ton of emotionality. So I, I think all of that is happening right now. And probably the way that social platforms 
and the news is incentivized to sensationalize stories also doesn't help with that and help get people exposed to the full nuanced picture of everything that's going on in the NFT landscape. Um, and I think ultimately how we get out of this and how we ultimately change the tide on the popular sentiment around NFTs is just to continue building, to focus on building end user applications that actually deliver them value in their lives. Going back to what we said around why people would, un- would want to purchase things, a, lar- a large motivation for buying things in general is just utility, having it benefit your life in some way. Um, so I think I think the way that we get through this is really just to continue building and iterating on applications and use cases that are going to actually make people's lives better on a mass scale. Jesse, did you want to add anything on that? Yeah, I think one other dimension of of criticism of of NFTs in particular has been the sort of environmental um, impact of of blockchains broadly. And I I have talked about this before, I think, on, on another podcast, but um, I, I find that um, it's, it's a worthy critique because it's true that um, Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are both proof of work blockchains today, are very energy consumptive. So it's, it's a question worth asking. But I think the, a lot of the sort of um, mainstream critiques are, are really unnuanced in, in how far people have probed into, you know, how bad for the environment the blockchains um, that back these NFTs actually are. You know, so I, and and I'll admit I'm not an expert here myself, but I think you know often the the comparisons are you know the the amount of energy consumption relative to a small country, but what you don't see are, are comparisons of you know how much energy does a blockchain consume versus, for example, like the global banking system and all the bank branches and all the lights in those branches, right? Um, and you know it, it, if you start to sum sum up like you know energy consumption of the financial system or energy consumption of, for example, all the free ports that store physical artworks and all the jet planes that fly to Art Basel every year to collect, um, you know, multi-million dollar works, then the, the conversation is, is more complicated and harder to, you know, to measure, frankly. I'm of the view that long run, the, the technology is moving away from proof of work. Ethereum plans to move to proof of stake, which will be far less energy consumptive. And, and you know, if you, if you compare that future to all the, you know, the consumption and emissions from the physical art market or the, you know, the physical financial system, it starts to become clear that this is actually a lot more energy efficient. But of course, you know, it's hard to fit all that into 140 characters. (laughs) And so that nuance is lost. And and so um, unfortunately, there is this perception that NFTs are like extremely destructive for the environment. And that's stopped a lot of artists from engaging without, you know, digging further. And, and I think that's uh, that's something we need to overcome. All right. Well, there's so much uh, more that I could unpack with you both, but um, <laughs> we're, we're just going to have to jump to my last question here, which is uh, obviously we're still at the beginning of 2022. You know, we, after everything that happened with NFTs last year, and even, you know, we started to see a lot with DAOs, I was curious for your predictions as to what we'll see in those areas and in general in the ownership economy this coming year? So I think that, as I mentioned, a a big part of how I got to being a crypto investor is through the future of work angle and interest in how people are going to be able to access income and wealth permissionlessly. And so I think that's going to be a huge area of development in the future. Like we're still very, very early in terms of 
how many people globally are earning income through crypto, members of different DAOs collecting NFTs. And I think those figures are only going to grow in the coming years. Um, a stat that I oftentimes cite to support this is the fact that in surveys of Americans, usually upwards of 70% of people will say that they want to be self-employed. 70% um, of Americans want to be self-employed. The actual number of Americans who are self-employed is far, far below that. And it actually doesn't change that much over time. So about 30% of Americans are actually self-employed. And that gap between that 30 and that 70 is not changing that much um, year over year. And what that tells me is really there's this underlying desire to be self-directed, to have freedom, to be autonomous, to be able to do work on their own terms. But the lift historically in terms of actually starting a small business, quitting your job, becoming an entrepreneur, setting up a company, figuring out how to do marketing and acquire customers, that is too high of a barrier to entry for most people to actually realize those goals. And to me, the really exciting element of crypto is that people can kind of gradually transition in through participating in some of these networks and starting to earn and ramp up their involvement over time. So one can start as, for example, a DAO member, then over time start contributing, then become a core contributor and earn ownership in the actual DAO itself over time. And so I think it's actually a much more accessible path to that dream of earning income in a self-directed way that most Americans have than what has historically been available to them. Yeah, I you probably don't know this, but I did a TEDx talk back in 2018, and this was the exact topic of my talk because I, yeah, I um, have always liked working for myself and I um, don't do very well if I were, I mean, it, I do fine. They, they like me as a worker, but like, I personally don't feel fulfilled working for other people. So when I learned about crypto and, and understood that this could be an effect, like I got very excited because I, I do feel like I know so many people who would like to work for themselves who don't for various reasons, mostly having to do with security and like, especially in the US, like worried, like everybody is like, what do you do for health insurance? <laughs> um, so um, yeah, that's definitely one of the things I'm most excited about with crypto. Um, okay. Well, this has been so fun uh, chatting with both of you. Where can people learn more about each of you and Variant? On our website, variant.fun. And we're both on Twitter. You can append our Twitters to the end of the... We'll put them in the show uh, notes, but you can, the, but you the can show just notes. <laughs> say what they are if you want. Sure. Yeah. Mine is is kind of tricky. It's Jesse WLDN, which is my last name, Walden with no vowels. And then the, I'm LGen18 on Twitter. And then I also publish a lot on my newsletter, lee.substack.com. Perfect. All right. Thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Thanks so much for having us. Thank Laura. you for having us. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Lee, Jesse, and Variant Fund, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Mark Murdoch, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. <laughs>